It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. whether we broke a few rules or took a few liberties with our female party guests. We did. Well, you can't hold a whole fraternity responsible for the behavior of a few sick, perverted individuals. For if you do, then shouldn't we blame the whole fraternity system? And if the whole fraternity system is guilty, and isn't this an indictment of our educational institutions in general? I put it to you, Greg. Isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? Well, you can do what you want to us. But we're not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. Gentlemen! Walking out on this one, mister. You're finished. No more Delta. You bought it this time, Buster. I'm calling your national office. I'm going to revoke your charter. And if you wise guys try one more thing, one more, I'm going to kick you out of this college. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net, betting at 100.1 and above. This is Bashcast episode number 157, Simple Chaos it is. 35 minutes past 5pm on Friday the 8th of May 2020, VE Day. Coming up in this evening's Bashcast... There is uh, still no sport, and I still haven't done any betting since early March. So this is a warning. If you don't like me talking about my life and random things that I've noticed and thought about and done, um, it's not the bashcast for you. It's apologies up front, but what can I do? If you are hanging around, we talk about quarantine life and the resurgence of um, poker. Um, a major merger happens in the sports betting world. And uh, we look back at the bad boys of the NBA, the Detroit Pistons, after the break. An obituary for Tony Lewis. And uh, the second month in a row, or the second episode in a row, we discuss the Nash Equilibrium this time in rock, papers and scissors. All of that and more coming up in this evening's Bashcast. Happy quarantine days. Is that seven weeks we've done now? 
I think. It's 24-7, five days a week with the kids with me. And then at least I've got someone to help me out on the weekend. So as I mentioned in the intro, I, um, I haven't placed a bet, so I don't have any sports betting chat. Like most, if not all, bash casts are structured around what I've bet on and why I bet on it. And that with a little bit of rambling in between. But I can't do that to know. Genuinely, I bet on nothing. I have this... Let me take you through my thought process, though, okay? So, I mean, there is stuff to bet on. There's eSports. There's Belarus football. There's stay-at-home darts in which they're probably... Well, I've seen that there are advantage players getting some sort of edge over some wrong prices on that. Um, and there is plenty of poker on. Um, but I had the thought Weirdly, wouldn't it be nice to have a break, given that I'm scrambling everything around? And I, I try to figure out, why am I thinking that? You see, I, I, I immediately thought, am I thinking that because it's nice to have a break from gambling? Cause I, didn't wanna, I didn't want that to be the justification for having a break, because I'm thereby implying that I need a break from something that's negative. And we, we already have this narrative that's around painting a bad picture of gambling. I didn't want to think, oh, I, I, you know, know your limits, need a break. That doesn't apply necessarily when you're a professional gambler. It's like a dentist going to work and then someone saying to him, you know what, have you done enough dentistry this week? Do you need a break from dentistry? He's like, no, I'm a dentist. That's what I do. It's my job. Um, and so there, there, there's certainly, when you're doing, when you're gambling professionally, there is the requirement not to sort of think that you need to have an extended break for it for reasons of having a rest from it It wasn't that i think what it was for me was that there is a difference in volume which equates to a difference in variance so i don't know if you've had the same um if you have a losing run what's the best way to get out of a losing run we all know it's volume trust your ev if you got the ev right if your equity is in your favour in the long run, then just volume, 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 volume gets you through any bad run. Uh, there hasn't been a bad run I've ever had in the past that I haven't got out of. There have been lots that I thought I wasn't going to get out of. Many, many. That's just the psychological nature of downswings. But I've got out of every single one. Uh, and one tactic sometimes that I use is that if I'm losing, I, I, I sometimes end up betting more just to get through that losing period faster um well what i know now is that if i'm placing anything any bets they're definitely much thinner much fewer far between you know i'm not placing 30 40 50 60 bets a day i'm placing one or two or three a day at an order of magnitude of to the of 10 times or 20 times fewer bets so if i go on a losing run then i could very possibly bet every day for two months and lose every day for two months now i've had losing months before i've never had two consecutive losing months in a row and i didn't want it so what's the point uh, i'm scrambling around really for pennies of ev and it doesn't do me any favor getting out of losing runs so i think that it wasn't the decision the thought process wasn't based around needing a break from gambling it was from not wanting to reduce my volume to a level where I was really going to be at the mercy of, ver- of 
variants, which could have worked both ways. I could easily have got on a hot run, won lots of money, but I didn't. I just didn't want to. It's the first time since maybe well, my records go back to two thousand eleven. So it's the uh, like my day by day records go back to two thousand and eleven. So it's the first time in nine years since I haven't been placing bets on a daily basis. Which is something. It's a break. Also, you've got the kids. So, I mean, like, when I when I have the kids on in, in normal on-lockdown world, I sort of make the decision that I'm not going to juggle them and gambling. And now that I have them all the time, that just makes my life a little bit easier. Takes a foot off the gas. So I had to fill it with other things. Um, gym's closed, my CrossFit gym, and I miss strength training probably more than anything. Uh, so uh, I find I've I've done a lot of running. I've been going jogging. My God, I'm so much slower than I used to be. I used to be silly with running, like ultra marathons and things when I was in my 20s. My sister was a very capable runner as well, with a sub three hour marathon time. Um, yeah. So I've got back into running. But the technology now, I remember when I was really into running, you would have to plot the route and work out the distance using either a pen and paper or rudimentary Google Maps back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then record everything on a spreadsheet. It took forever to do. The analytics of it took forever. And now with Strava, it's just so quick. What I do know is that my mile PB when I was 25 was 4 minutes and 52 and I can't get under seven minutes just now. And I'm not blaming age there. I'm only 42 years old. Apparently, you're at your strongest when you're 44. I don't know if fastest counts, but you're definitely at your strongest. Well, you never see very young, long-distance runners because um, long-distance running is something that you can do into middle age. Uh, I'm just not run-fit. I'm strong-fit, but not run-fit. So I've been doing a lot of running. Not a lot, not long-distance, three, four, five, six miles, um, because of the kids. So I've been doing it in the back garden. My back garden is 100 feet long. And so um, 330 laps of that is a 10K run. So I've been doing 330 laps in my back garden. And because at the same time, I can look after the kids. I say look after the kids. I put the kids on the trampoline. They cry. And I run 330 laps past um, running kids. It's bliss. It's utter bliss. <laughs> So, like, my routine has changed. I've tried to keep it positive with the running and the exercise. One thing that I found that has changed is that I think it's also this sort of need that we're all in lockdown, so we're not... I mean, I, you know, you know I, I, don't, I don't want to moan, but I'm in lockdown with under four-year-olds, so I don't have any adult conversation. And what that's resulted in is I've become a little bit more trigger-happy um, on social media. So before, like most of the time, I sort of ingrained this philosophy into my head, which is, that's not your battle, right? If you ever see something, someone say something stupid or whatever, some, and how many times do you see that on social media? Like, before you reply to that person, or at least I reply, I would reply to them, I would ask, I would say to myself, that's not your battle. Is that your battle? Because you've got a lot going on just now. Productivity-wise, sitting and arguing with this person probably isn't 
the best use of your time right now. So that's not your battle. That they can think that stupid thing or someone else can fight that corner. You don't need to because it's not going to in any way enhance your life. Now I've got nothing to do. <laughs> so it is my battle. And I've just found myself getting into arguments with idiots, which I should know better of because it hasn't, imp- <laughs> it hasn't, it hasn't improved my life whatsoever because idiots don't learn. Um, so last night there was the, the, the clap for the NHS workers. And somebody said, polite request from NHS and other key workers with pets, please, no fireworks at the 8pm national applause. Um, Frontline workers arriving home after working stressful and long hours are having to deal with the additional problem of dealing with traumatised pets. Now, I didn't like this at all because I do know a few Look, we all do. We all know. We either all really know nurses and doctors. I'm not special by knowing medical staff. We all know medical staff. But the thing is that none of the medical staff that I do and I ask that I know and I ask them were concerned about fireworks. In fact, a couple of them said they didn't even really care for the clapping. Um, especially people that video themselves clapping, because then you're not clapping for the NHS workers, you're clapping for yourself and you want other people to see that you're clapping. Um, what they care about is PPE primarily. P- that's what they care about. Um, so they don't care about the clapping. They certainly didn't care about fireworks. But this person's hijacking um, NHS and key workers to push their agenda that they don't work fire. They don't like fireworks. And there has been this... Look, I... I don't care either way on the fireworks debate. What I know is that when I was a child, I remember there always being fireworks. And um, now that I'm an adult, it seems like there are a section of society that say they don't like loud bangs and their pen and their pets and emotionally fragile cockapoos get sensitive and scared from loud bangs. And uh, a large group of anti-fireworks people have congregated to suggest that um, it, there is a societal and moral issue with letting off fireworks. And I looked into it. And legally, you can let off fireworks in like 362 days of the other three days that you can't. And you can do it between the hours of 7 a.m. and 11 p.m. So you let off a firework at 7.30 in the morning, it's legal. You let off a firework at 10.30 at night, it's legal. Now, whatever you think about whether we should be protecting emotionally fragile cockapoos or people with PTSD, it's legal. And under a libertarian society, we do whatever we want. We're free to do what we want under the rules of law. And... I'd go even further and suggest that I don't necessarily agree with all the rules of law and don't have to live my life under (laughs) the ones as long as I'm not harming anyone else. But setting fireworks off is legal. You may disagree with it, but it is, um, it's legal. So I asked which department of the NHS commissioned this polite message and Jesus Christ, did, did I get bombarded with abuse for asking that. I mean, all I was saying was that somebody had commissioned themselves as a self-appointed spokesperson for key workers 
and NHS staff and was pushing an anti-fireworks agenda. I mean, I don't actually know why I thought I wasn't going to get in trouble with starting that argument. And um, it, it, I tried to keep it alive with um, um, staying neutral on either side of the fireworks argument and having a discussion about the difference between freedom and society, liberty, and an authoritarian society, which I personally completely do disagree with. Unfortunately, it descended into an argument of, um, my husband does PTSD, uh, how dare you, he doesn't like loud bounds, and then this person friends saying, you have no compassion or empathy, you're a disgusting human being, and if you were my husband, I would be cringing at what you're saying. So... this is a, a sort of sectional part of society that are throwing um, personal comments and insults in, on, into a Facebook argument to try and win it. And then I'm asking, so why am I trying to win it? It's stupid. And this is all. This is this justifies my thinking at the time that this isn't my fight. <laughs> it, really, it really isn't. It's a complete waste of time because I'm not even pro fireworks or anti fireworks. I am nothing fireworks. I'm I'm fireworks agnostic. Is where I am, and I, I'm, I'm by voicing my opinion on any of these things. I am learning that I'm not winning. I even got in trouble with Jenny Eclair. You know Jenny Eclair, the TV, um, the t- the nineties, eighties TV grandma. What does Jenny Eclair do now? I know I, I've heard of her, but I actually don't know anything about her CV. Let me just type her into Google. Jenny Eclair is the woman from. Um, Grumpy old women from two thousand and four to two thousand and seven, and loose women. Jesus, pick your fights, Tom. Had I known that, <laughs> and um, I don't know why I follow her on Twitter. I just follow everyone. I follow Nick Griffin on Twitter. Just because I follow people doesn't mean that I have to. You don't want to live in an echo chamber, is what I'm saying. So um, she was having a moan that why is football in the news? Because you know that comedy and theatre isn't in the news about when that's going to start up again. Um, and on Twitter, at Bugs underscore Amanda said, exactly, and I hope there is some sort of ban on footballers spitting. Bloody disgusting. Um, right, okay. So this is typical mor- moronic individual that I really should look at it and think, that's not my fight. That's not, it's not my fight, Amanda Boyd. But I did have to... Yeah, I'm, a bit, it could, I'm not biting my tongue. So under prolonged athletic physical conditions, the saliva glands are used to get rid of excess protein in the form of MUC5B, which thickens saliva, making it hard to swallow. And some people's bodies produce more of this protein than others, which for them, it could be hazardous to swallow it. Um, so, of course, um, Amanda Boyd sarcastically said, oh, that makes it OK then. Which, by the way, I thought it did because there was a scientific and physiological reason behind it. But, of course, I'm arguing with someone on Twitter. And then Jenny Eclair jumped in saying that she wanted people to spit in, uh, footballers to spit into a hanky from that. And like, oh, my days. But this sort of moves on to, like, I was discussing a lot about the coronavirus the last um, podcast, which uh, I've continued to do sort of on social medias. I'm not going to do it so much this podcast. And what frustrates me about conversations about the coronavirus especially on twitter is that you do not know the education level of the people on the other side um i've said before i know an um um a medical doctor who has chosen to become a medical journalist and talks uh specifically about the um 
availability and success uh, and risk of various prescribed drugs um, that are around. And he will get into arguments with lay people uh, on Facebook. And uh, you just think, why are you bothering? Because people don't know how educated you are, Neil. And so this isn't a forum for you to try and get your very educated and opinionated points across. Now, for me, I'm, I'm certainly not a virologist, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about uh, this disease or anything like that. What I do know about um, is models and modelling. And a comment that came towards me was um, um, every single person that identifies as a gambler thinks that they're an expert in modelling, which I didn't reply to. So my history in modelling, um, I studied a PhD Birmingham University in the early 2000s. I went around the world attending conferences, both listening to and presenting on stochastic, deterministic, probabilistic, uh, and um, a new kind of evolutionary algorithm for modeling the pros, the benefits, everything like that. After an 80,000 word um, thesis, in the world of artificial intelligence and civil engineering. Um, moved over to one of the largest consultancies in Europe where we predicted, we created a model to predict the 30-year behaviour of every 10 metres of the entire M25, M25 road network. That's the largest design and build finance operation in all of Europe. Um, over 3,000 kilometres of pavement, which has different traffic loading. And that's the M25 and stubs and tails, so all the slip roads and different roads that connect to it in the primary, primary motorway network. And that's predicting different traffic levels across different lanes and different 10-metre homogenous sections around the network on, under different um, categorizations such as rutting and uh, ride quality, longitudinal profile variance, blah, 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 blah. It's an exceptionally complicated model, which ended up um, being um, one of the most sophisticated and invested in all of Europe. We went down over to Israel, who were setting the, the benchmark for the efficiencies of these deterministic models. Okay? Um, um, we spoke with them for a long time, and then I came over and headed the asset management group that created those models. That's my background. I'm not saying I'm not a, I'm not saying any of that for any other reason other than I understand how these models are limited in the types of information that they can provide. And I was having a, a particular discussion about the model that the UK were using to predict the spread of this virus in the UK. And the reason this is important is that all of the factors of lockdown, the length of time and how we reopen schools and everything like that, the decisions from that are being based on this model produced by Ferguson from UCL in London, which is a stochastic model of which I've built numerous over time in the last 20 years of my career, 25 years. 
now by stochastic, what that means is it uses random probability um, in building an output, which um, isn't just fine. It's actually probably exactly the kind of thing that you need to do when you're trying to work out how a virus spreads. Right? So if a virus spreads from one person to maybe 1.8 people and that person comes into five people, then there needs to be some sort of probability that the virus transfers from one person to the next. And so you, you, you add into the code uh, a, a random number generator and say, you know, yeah, eight times out of ten, um, when these two people come into contact, the virus will jump from this person to this person. And then you start modeling how people move around under one scenario, a free country. And then you model how we move around if we close everything down, if we open up nurseries, if we have football stadium up and open and everything like that. So what this model requires is that we model social interaction around the country. And UCL have been building this model um, for 20 years. Um, and uh, what I've read about it, it has significant and serious flaws because it is the primary model that is used for by the government in the situation of an epidemic. Um, and whilst it's fine that a model uses random numbers, a model should always give the same answer if you give it the same input and you expect an output, the output should always be the same. Okay, the, the randomness should all only be built, or at least the same within, you know, five significant figures or something like that, or at, at the very most, three significant figures, but you wouldn't want it any more than that. And what they found with this model was that not only um, could you run it once, with the same input and it would say 400,000 deaths and then run it with exactly the same input and it would say 300,000 deaths. Um, but if you ran it um, using exactly the same seeding, the, exactly the same random numbers, but using different CP on different computers, using different CPU chips, you would still get vastly different outputs and the reason for this is um the code is awful it's patched code that has just been taken and patched over time and over time and i've had this in the past where you start off with a model and then you add to it and tinker with it and bug to it and then a manager comes around and wants something changed and then a director wants something else changed and, and, and you go and you keep on changing everything well what you do is you get very close to the end you say is that all the changes now we're just going to start again from the beginning with some clean code Right? We're going to build this from scratch, knowing now all the modifications, enhancements, and improvements. We are just going to um, start right from scratch with a large team. Uh, uh, and this is where you bring in sort of an educated uh, and established consultancy IT team. Uh, and you build the code. But UCL is an academic institution, a self-serving one that will rely on funding from the government. They probably didn't have the money to bring in um, Microsoft or whatever. And so they've continued with this model that, from what I've read, isn't worth the JavaScript that it, or whatever kind of code that it is written on. It really isn't. Um, uh, quite frankly, if you can't have the stability in the output being uh, of two identical runs being within a certain gap of each other and this model does not 
then you can't rely on it. And if you can't rely on it, then all the decisions that we've been making about lockdown um, are, are based on a completely and utterly flawed logic. I'm not saying that the coronavirus doesn't exist. I'm not saying that um, we shouldn't have lockdown. Um, I'm not saying that um, what is going on isn't serious. What I am saying is that the decisions that are being made um, are being made on completely and utterly flawed science. This Ferguson guy who has been fired because he couldn't obey lockdown himself because uh, he, um, he was off shellacking with some um, some protester lady, which is just the, the biggest irony in the entire world. Um, but in 2002, he predicted 50,000 people would die of BSE. The actual number was 178. In 2005, he predicted 200 million people would die uh, of avian flu H5N1. The actual number was 78. Um, the, in 2009, he predicted the swine flu would kill 65,000 people. The actual number was 457. In 2020, he predicted that half a million Britons would die from COVID-19. We're sitting at 20,000. We're meant to be over the peak of the curve. Um, what I'm suggesting is that we have to scrap these predictions of models and think more intelligently about the bigger picture. The, this is where we scrap the models and say the models just aren't accurate enough for us to... Um, to base any decisions on. So what are New Zealand doing? What are Norway doing? What are these countries that are quite simply isolating and locking down the vulnerable and allowing their economies to continue because that is the real serious problem? So, look, it was pointless getting into those arguments in Twitter. Um, the universe is random. It's not in inevitable. It is simple chaos uh, from the professor walter white so back to my lockdown look so i've been doing a lot of um running i've got the greenhouse going i've got the herbs and i've got the herbs in the greenhouse for some reason the rosemary's not taking up very well um but the herbs are shooting up um beautifully uh so that's been a very fun project it's been good that we've had a lot of um really decent weather recently as well it's been quite warm for april and may so i've just been watering everything in there every day if anyone wants a chili pop around my house four of my family i'm the only one that really likes hot food although my son's starting to get a taste for it i've got about 18 chili plants all of which are looking very healthy so um yeah feel free as I say, universe is random. It's not inevitable. It is simple chaos. So that means that there has been one um, gambling activity that has should really... Well, it has taken off completely. Poker, especially online poker, I've fallen out of love with in the last five or six years for time, family, things like that. I used to play a lot of it. But there is one genuine another reason to be very honest about with online poker and that is it is much harder to win these days than it used to be it used to be significantly easier to win for a variety of reasons the two biggest are the the rake the amount of money that the um the sites take when you buy into a tournament um um is much higher double the amount today than it used to be uh, at, or on cash games, um, they rake a percentage of the pot, and that is on, on all across all games and limits. That is much higher. So that's the first problem. So that in itself, if you are, you know, if you have an ROI of ten percent before rake, um, that could be you know an ROI of six percent after rake in the past, and that could be zero to three percent, which you know isn't a lot isn't a lot of money anymore um, after rake these days. Uh, and the second reason is that 
there are fewer players and those players that are around now are much better than they used to be there used to be so much dead money there used to be a lot of people that did not know how to play and played recreationally very badly see i was never a great poker player the one skill set i had is that i could identify a recreational player and i'm sort of merciless against them i'm not going to take any pity if you've sat down with your own money against me i don't care about your um level of ability or um experience my genuine job i'm not here this isn't a game of uh, nursery football where there are no winners this is a game of poker where i'm going to try and take all the money that's in front of you you won't learn if i don't try and do that and so i could um identify who was bad more importantly identify who was good and avoid the good players and really focus on who I perceive to be bad. And if you don't know who the fish is within five minutes of sitting down at the table, then believe me, it's you that's the fish. So we've had um, a bit of fun with the home games, just a really small sort of tournament, um, um, a bookie bashing. Um, it's been going on now for six weeks, although the first week was very small, only six people, because we, we just set it up and had it up with a couple of friends. And then we've sent the code out in previous weeks uh, I won it the first three weeks unbelievable uh, that was field sizes of 6 20 and 21 that's just running like unbelievable god in all honesty like no matter how good you are you don't win three tournaments in a row like that um, and then I've lost the last two I want to talk about a very interesting hand I thought though because I like hand analyses and there's no sport going on just now um, but there is poker. So let's talk about um, this poker hand, right? I'm just going to rewind. This was um, last week's last week's bookie bashing lockdown. And this is the final three players, of which I was not one of them. Um, we had Lanky53, who was the chip leader with 30,000 chips. Um, and he is in the big blind, in the button... We have 13,500 chips, and in the small blind, we have 20,000 chips. So there's about 63,000 chips on the table, of which our hero, Lanky, in the big blind, has 30,000 chips. And the blinds are 250,500 with an ante of 60. So before cards dealt, there's 930 pounds in the pot. Uh, so our man is dealt the king of diamonds and the six of diamonds in the big blind. Button folds, which, by the way, three ways is terrible. I think when you're down to three in a tournament and you're on the button, any two cards is a raise. Any two cards, especially when you've, you've only got sort of 25 big blinds. Just raise any two. Um... The small blind limps in, which again I don't like, but there you go, that's what's happened to us. He's limped in, uh, and we have the king of diamonds and the six of diamonds. Now, for me, I'm raising any king here. King two, king three, king four, and, a, and definitely raising any suited king. But Lanky decided to check. It's not awful, but what that does is that you're probably ahead because the small blind would be raising any ace, most kings, things like that. So king six and almost all pairs. No, all pairs. So I think we can say from the small blind's limp that we're probably ahead of this hand. Which, in, in that case, if we're ahead, we want to get money in the pot. 
But Lanky decided to check. Flop comes down. Ten of diamonds, six of hearts, ten of hearts. That really is bingo. Okay, why is it bingo? Well, think about the tens that the small blind... I mean, I'm, I'm going to dismiss any pair from his holding because he didn't raise. What tens could he have? Ace, ten, king, ten, queen, ten, jack, ten, nine, ten, eight, ten, and seven, ten should all have been um, raises pre-flop. A competent player would have been raising all of those hands pre-flop. Six, ten, we have a six blocker, so there are only two tens and two sixes left in the deck for him to have ten six which really reduces that, that um and ten five ten four ten three ten two are his only reasonable holdings it's not a lot of permutations okay um there are two ten f um two tens and four fives two tens and four fours two tens and four threes two tens and four twos that those are the permutations that could have hit the ten um, so the small blind who's out of possession checks Lanky decides just a min bet 500 into a pot of 1600 and the small blind calls the turners are relatively safe two of diamonds so we now have ten of diamonds six of hearts ten of hearts and two of diamonds we have two flush draws on board but not much else other than that there's not much else to be scared of there you know, I, I'm pretty sure if I've got king six, I can't really figure out what I'm losing against. Um, the small blind checks. He has 18,000 chips. So he has about 40 big blinds. Lanky puts in 1,000 chips into a pot of 2,000. So he half bets it, which is fine. The small blind check raises him all in for his remaining 18,000 chips. Now, what's going on here? We're really deep in the tournament. We've got to figure out, is king six good enough on a 10-6, 10-2 board? So ask yourself, what cards does the small blind have? Yes, he has 10-2 for a full house. He has 10-3, 10-4, 10-5, and 10-6 in his range. I think those are the only cards that are beating us. What else does he have in his range? All diamond flush draws all heart flush draws and all straight flush draws of which on a 10 6 10 2 there are a lot of straight draws there are 3 4 3 5 4 5 uh, 7 8 7 9 8 9 all of those ace oh no ace three isn't but all of those combinations of flush and straight draws smack of checking and then putting it all in you see if he's got a 10 which he could do i think he, t he goes to the river and slow plays it so even the 10 5 10 4 10 3 10 2 which is beating us it doesn't look likely he would check raise the turn here because he wants to elicit action on the river he doesn't he wants to slow play this if he's a competent player you know if, he's, if this is a second tournament it's almost impossible to know that if he's thinking this deeply about it but even then even bad players would figure out that i don't want to scare my opponent off when i've got a monster so the only hands that are beating us are sort of 10 6 10 5 10 4 10 3 10 2 and i think he just peels off the turn and goes to the river to slow play them to elicit max value so what's he jamming with the flush draw and the straight draw, the 7-8, the 7-9, the 8-9, the 3-4, the 3-5, the 4-5, the diamond draw and the heart draw. I think this king-six, which is second pair, is 
probably ahead. Certainly, this deep in a tournament, when you have to call 17,000 to win 38,000, so you're getting just over double your money. Are you ahead over half the time here? Because that's all you have to worry about in the equity of the decision. You're getting just over double your money. I'm pretty sure just over double once out of every two times. In fact, significantly more than once out of every two times. Um, you're going to be ahead here with the King Six. Unfortunately, our hero Lanky folded. And the small blind won that pot without showing his cards. So we will never know. Um, what do you think? Think it was a good fold? So poker's booming. Again, just because of the kids and the decision to have a little bit of a break. I haven't been doing much on it. Um, um, the rake's too small. They need swank poker needs to come back. Did you hear about swank poker? That was when you could turn your frequent player points into um, a heady cocktail of poker and sex. So you could um, cash in your FPPs for the world's... So on Pokestars, you can get a baseball cap all the way up to like... Um, you, you used to be able to get a Ferrari. I don't know if that's still available for a Super Elite just now. Um, but on Swang Poker, you used to be able to go to the world's best brothels, strip clubs, swing clubs, all expenses, visits to escort services in the world's hottest destinations, trips to clothing optional resorts, backstage access to adult movies, and even for like the, the highest the highest amount of conversion, the opportunity to film an adult scene with the Swank Girls. A spokesperson said, there is no guarantee, even though we'll try that we'll send you to the EPT, WPT, WSOP and, and all of that lot. But if, along with all of the online tables you are playing to get there, you play at least one Swank poker table, we'll make sure that you'll get laid or will come to as close as is legally possible, whether you go to the poker event or not. For anyone that wants to give it a go, it did fold in 2011. Um, uh, uh, didn't just fold, it took all the players' money at the same time. Um, um, but if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to um, go back in time, play on that site, scoop is around. Um, the main event is going to be the 19th, which is in 11 days. That'll be a week on Sunday, um, which is the $10,300 high roll. I've never played a $10,000 event online. I've only played it live. I'd be terrified to. The, the just utter geniuses playing that event. I might try and um, play the 1050 the sort of smaller buy and main event. Um, that's only just because it'll have a huge... Of an absolutely huge field. And that's because everyone's in lockdown. And poker has really boomed. And if ever... So all those things I was saying about um, poker is much harder these days. Um, from the limited amount of games that I've played, it's a, it seems to be a lot easier because so many more people are playing. And you just get more people playing. There's more recreational play, people playing. All the sports bettors have moved over to poker. Um, and if ever, if ever there was a time where you thought that you might give um, online poker a go and you think you, you, you have the self-discipline to actually read a little bit of strategy, study a little bit, discuss hand history, it's the best way of learning, um, 
then I'm pretty sure that the low stakes are beatable. And you never know, you can always lock into a satellite into a bigger event and see if you can cash. One of the very first events I ever played, I, I locked into a, a satellite from a $5 into a $100 tournament and then came third in the $100 tournament for $10,000. One of the first, I was convinced I was the world's greatest poker player and then years later realised how much I lockboxed it. I think I might play the um, uh, the the eight game um, as well, which is um, going to be on a week today. The thousand and fifty dollar eight game, just because I bloody love that game. It's a lot of fun. I thought I'm pretty sure it's one of the few games I definitely think I still maintain an edge in. Um, just because no limit hold'em is so difficult, you know. So um, then that's what's going on at PokerStars. If you need to have a gamble, um, I think there's some EV there for anyone that's um, willing to put a little bit of work. Now, talking about PokerStars. We move on to the story about the merger group between Flutter Entertainment and the Stars Group. Um, Flutter Entertainment has this week completed its long-awaited acquisition of the Stars Group, forming the world's largest iGaming operator. The two parties um, agreed to f- um, to join forces last October, but now the authorities in the UK have given the green light to the merger. Um, so this is... Um, Betfair and Paddy Power merging with Skybet, Foxbet, PokerStars, BetEasy and Full Tilt. Now, I had an absolute nightmare when Paddy Power and Betfair merged together because years ago, a decade ago, I had a Paddy Power account. Someone idiotically told me if I want to get around the restrictions, it was actually we were talking about casino restrictions as well. We weren't even talking about sportsbook restrictions. I, I was banned from receiving casino bonuses. They said if you self-exclude forever your Paddy Power account and just open a new one in your own name, you'd be able to get your bonuses back. I don't know why I listened to them, but I had no purpose for the Paddy Power account under my name because I was limited on the sports book and now I'd lost the casino. So I thought, well, no harm, no foul. I I really couldn't care less if this doesn't work. So I self-excluded forever. I tried to open up one, another one in my name. It didn't work and I lost my Paddy Power and I really wasn't upset. Then Paddy Power and Betfair merged and in the middle of the World Cup, my Betfair account was frozen with all my money in it. And I tried to log on, it wouldn't let me. Um, you couldn't get in touch with live chat because they got rid of that. There's no email or anything like that. So I get in touch with on Twitter and um, they just say, yeah, your account's been frozen because you're self-excluded on a private DM. I was like, well, okay, a couple of things. One, I didn't self-exclude from Betfair. You see, there's a difference between a sports book and a casino and uh, an exchange. Um, I'm a professional gambler. If uh, Don't do this under responsible gambling guidelines because... I've got family and kids uh, and I need to make money on the Betfair exchange. Uh, they didn't listen to me. They didn't care. From their side, they were completely safety first. Um, they're completely risk adverse when it comes to responsible gambling. There's, they've obviously been bent over backwards by a number of arsehoes who don't res- accept responsibility for their own behavior. They, they lose money. They claim they've got gambling addiction problems and then they, they sue the company. Uh, and so uh, I lost my Betfair account. Um when Paddy Power and Betfair merged. And I was really upset. But now I'm just used to making money on Sparkers. I got over it over time. Felt like the end of the world at the time. Well, now I think I have to prepare to lose Skybet, Foxbet, 
poker stars bet easy and full tilt as well. Given what happened with Paddy Power and Betfair, I mean, the annoying thing with Paddy Power and Betfair is that I couldn't talk to anyone. No, no, no one would accept responsibility. All the decisions were being made in the past and then being sent to me over direct message on Twitter. It's the worst way to communicate with a problem um, with a customer. Um, uh, and I'm just slightly terrified that the same way is going to go with Sky Betting and PokerStars, which are the two from that list that I really use quite a lot of. And But I can't do anything about it if it does, I guess. Yeah, I've made the mistake. I'm just going to have to lie in my bed and think of diff- different avenues. Um, the other thing being that Sky Better, the one of that set that we know unrestricted counts uh, um, if you start playing the game. If you're not actively betting just on arbitrage and on um, uh, sort of bonus bumming, um, but you're actually playing the game with them a little bit, even if it is with a long-term strategy, we all know Skybet will unrestrict accounts and allow you to have larger limits. They're very fair with me with what I can get on on golf and request a bet and a number of different markets and even horses. And um, over the last 18 months, I've been extremely impressed with what Skybet have allowed. Um, so it, um, you never know. Paddy Power and Betfair are almost exactly the same sports book now. They have the same odds. They have the same um, request of bets and everything like that. You do wonder what direction we're going to go in now with Skybet. It'll be such a shame if that brand just gets completely lost and those three sports books become one with the same odds, the same kind of bet, and have the same limits and the same restrictions and the same. You know what I mean? Um, Thinking about which way this is going to go, it could either be good or bad. I don't. I don't see anything in this merger that is going to be positive. Um, maybe nothing will happen, and maybe it'll be negative. So, from our world, I don't think it was the greatest news and the greatest idea in the entire world. Talking about the greatest idea in the entire world, um, Parker, specifically Roof Culture Asia, is on Amazon. Watch that. Um, um, it's these kids, kids, 20 year olds, 25 year olds that do parkour, but they do it on rooftops, um, jumping from 25 story building to 25 story building, things like that. I've been watching it with the kids, um, each morning. It's better than CBBS cause I can watch it and they are unbelievably brilliant. I've got a lot of admiration for the parkour, like sort of the lifestyle of just one Messing around and fucking around with the environment. Two, pissing off security guards. is always fun to see. Um, and three, knowing your limits. You know you can make a 16-foot jump between a couple of buildings. Um, and so you do it. You've got complete faith in yourself. You don't do it if you think that you're going to die. And that kind of self-awareness is awesome. The kind of self-awareness that one Isaiah Thomas could probably do with. The other program that I've been been watching, the series on Netflix, is the documentary The Last Dance, um, about the career of Michael Jordan, and specifically the 97-98 seasons of the Chicago Bulls. So this was a time when the Chicago Bulls was completely dominant in the NBA. But um, the the story of this series, and it's well, well worth watching, if you haven't caught up with it, but um, it's more interesting for me 
is um, Isaiah Thomas. So the Detroit Pistons um, in the late 80s, the early 90s, they became known as the bad boys of the NBA. And they were led by Dennis Rodman and they were led by Isaiah Thomas, the point guard. Um, And they built a team um, in the late 80s, the beginning of the 90s, focused around the Oakland Raiders from the NFL, who were known as the bad boys of the NFL. They were rough. They didn't necessarily um, play fairly. They left a lot of injuries on the field, but they were able to intimidate and win as a result of that. Um, And the Detroit Pistons, who were never a great team up until then, um, went as far as purchasing a load of Oakland Raiders merchandise to wear around the team in training and even at the ground. And um, they sort of self-styled themselves as the kind of... It was 94 feet of defence. So um, um, there was sort of an unwritten rule in NBA that you had to keep the crowd happy, you had to keep the flow of the game um, so that it was entertaining. So people like... um, Isaiah Thomas, Bill Beard, Dennis Rodman, they were um, tasked by the coach that the minute the opposition got the ball, there was going to be defence, there was going to be um, aggressive play. If anyone went up in the air and left their feet, there would be a shoulder barge, and there would be plenty of knees into the nuts and things like this. Uh, and they didn't necessarily play fair but the thing is they won i think in the early 90s they took um two titles and out of nowhere the detroit pistons playing ugly ugly basketball um around about i mean i i moved to america with my family when i was 10 years old and it was around about that time that they were just huge news in america how can they win it was like um rangers running the uefa cup in 2008 where they scored about one goal in five matches of qualification but they didn't ship any and it was the ugliest football and it certainly wasn't entertaining but you know what it did it got them to the final of the uefa cup where they got beaten well um the detroit pistons of the early 90s were the rangers of 2008 it wasn't fun basketball to watch um, it was ugly and it was unfair, but it got results. And so um, none of this isn't really in the documentary um, of the Detroit Pistons, other than Isaiah Thomas, um, who comes across just uh, like you, you see him. He's like this salesman, double glazing salesman. He's got the sharpest suit you ever saw in your entire life, obviously with tens of thousands of pounds, the biggest grin across his face. But it, Isaiah Thomas is public enemy number one in Michael Jordan's eyes. I mean, really hates the guys for a couple of reasons. Um, They say in the documentary it was because um, the Detroit Pistons stormed off the pitch in one game and didn't shake the hands of the Chicago Bulls. But it wasn't that. It It was a multitude of reasons before then. Um, when the Pistons were winning and they knew that um, Jordan was a, a up-and-coming basketball player, they would target him. There was the knees into the nuts. It was the foul them at every opportunity. And that didn't make the documentary. Um, um, and it got as bad as... Uh, Isaiah Thomas was one of the best basketball players in the NFL, in the NBA. And the Dream Team, which featured in the Olympics... In 1992, um, 
was like the, the the first big showcase of American NBA talent. Um, and when they formed the team, um, Isaiah Thomas would have been a shoo-in, but he was universally disliked by everybody forming the dream team um, to the extent that nobody would pick him simply because um, he wouldn't get on with the rest of the team. He was universally hated. So he goes on to this Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan, which Michael Jordan is going to have the final edit decisions over, and he thinks he's going to look good. Uh, and he's a, he's, a, he's a hated individual. It's brilliant to watch. I mean, you can't have sympathy for him because he had a long career and he was multi, multi, multi-millionaire Isaiah Thomas. I mean... Who cares about his feeling? But mate, you are not a liked man. You weren't a liked man in the early 90s. And incredibly, 30 years later from you being the villain, you're still the villain. You just don't know that you're the villain. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing. He's a complete ass. Um, he's, but he's a pantomime villain. It's only fun, isn't it? Nobody was hurt. It's 30 years later. There's still a lot of hatred in the air, though. So, listen, go and catch... Um, uh, the Last Dance and Rooftop Culture on Netflix and Amazon Primes. Those are the Bashcast recommendations of the month for lockdown no betting. Um, that's enough for the first half. Really is. Guys, you're listening to the Bashcast and it's brought to you by BuckyBashing.net. Brado no fim da cassete, toda a cantiga volta para o início. Por vezes ao vil é um frete. Mudar a faixa é sacrifício Para que rir se te viram as costas Todos duvidam, não dão benefício Até mesmo o céu se ilumina Aquilo que brilha é fogo de artifício E o que eu vejo é o teu cachorro para baixo Os teus lábios nunca para cima Alegria nunca está em casa A tristeza domina Por vezes não queremos e do nada temos Ou queremos e nunca encontramos As grandes coisas que perdemos Por pequenas coisas que ligamos E tu que brincavas, sonhavas capaz Nadavas na guerra para traçar caminhos Ter uma casa com vista para o mar Virada para a serra para ouvir passarinhos Viver sem contar com a saudade, sem estar a contar que ela vem de fininho bro. Porque nada é mais triste que alguém contribuir para vivermos sozinhos Só quero mais tarde olhar para o meu sobrinho e dizer Que a saudade também nos faz falta Não entrar na bulha, entrar na batida, mesmo se a agulha te salta Sem muita pressa mas sempre na altura exata Aplicar tudo o que é raciocínio por estar destinado e morremos na data E enquanto há quem espera que o tempo se acabe, não ficar deitado de olho fechado À espera que mude, o teu testamento é não gosto, não quis Não cheguei a tempo, não fiz que não pude Fazer pontaria para acertar no meio, não é num dos lados que está a virtude Ter toda a consciência da gravidade, quem sente saudade não sente saúde, meu boy Honrar a memória e fazê-lo com alma Nunca foi preciso fazer um mestrado Para manter a mente e o mundo na palma Quem cala consente aquilo que sentes É muito evidente, eu sinto na fala Se esticas a mão para abrir uma porta Não podes chorar quando a mesma tentá-la Por vezes sentes saudades de quem não sente E tudo isso vira um ciclo E é quando tu tentas dar o teu passo em frente Que tu voltas para o triciclo Alturas em que embarcas com o subconsciente e pensas que cais no ridículo. Por vezes sentes saudades de quem não sente e tudo isso vira um ciclo. Bobo ainda sinto saudade, sinto saudade. Saudade, eu te matei de fome. 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 
passem para alguém que deixa saudade. Ah, 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 ah. Há que saber lidar com isso. Ah, 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 ah. Às vezes eu sinto saudade de ver o meu bairro em atividade e alegria. Sim. Nessa altura em que tu dizias que era só espigaria, só uma onda, guarda. Tenho saudade do tempo em que a tua cara não carregava essa mania. Muita saudade de ver a amizade entre os bairros de cada zona. Saudades do tempo de escola e de haver união. Colegas com quem já não falo, apenas por falta de uma ligação. Um abraço para todos. Mas queres saber mesmo aquilo que eu sinto vaidade? Tenho orgulho naquilo que fomos. Nada paga aquilo que eu sinto saudade. Uma boa ainda sinto saudade. Welcome back to the Bashcast. That was um, So Daily by Dilaz from the album Reflexo in 2016. In the bookie bashing news, an obituary for Tony Lewis, who is the statistician who formed half of one of cricket's most famous partnerships. Um, so some people said it was just not cricket and others hailed Frank Duckworth and Tony Lewis for giving the game of cricket a crystal ball. Um, what is beyond dispute is that their mathematical formula for calculating the winner of rained off one day matches is 23 years not out. Um, as a result, Tony Lewis formed the one half of cricket's most famous partnership since Jack Hobbs and Herbert Sutcliffe, and he sadly passed away in March 2020. The Lancastrian statistician's journey started on March the 22nd, 1992, when the Cricket World Cup semi-final between England and South Africa at the Sydney Cricket Ground was entering a tense final. South Africa needed 22 runs to win, from the final 13 balls when heavy rain started falling. The target was tough, but doable. Only one more ball could be bowled in that match because of the rain. But the tournament's mathematical formula, called the least productive overs, reduced South Africa's target by only one run. They would need 21 runs from one ball, an impossibility. England's victory on that day felt hollow, Amid chaotic and angry scenes on the field, Christopher Martin Jenkins, who later became the Times cricket correspondent, pleaded on Test Match Special. Surely someone, somewhere, could come up with something 
better. Heading, Christopher Martin Jenkins called, Duckworth devised a theory for calculating whether the team batting second would overhaul the score of the team batting first if the match was abandoned. He wrote a paper on the subject that in 1992 landed on the desk of Lewis, a lecturer in management science at the University of West uh, of the West of England. He immediately decided to apply Duckworth's theory using historical data from hundreds of cricket matches and contacted his fellow Lancastrian. Appropriately, for mathematically minded men, their regular rendezvous the Pickwick Arms was almost exactly equidistant between their two homes in Gloucestershire. Their first discovery was a shared love of real ale. The formula takes into account how many overs are left and how many wickets remain at the time of the calculation. Crunching numbers from a huge database of matches, an algorithm calculates a revised target for the team batting second with a reduced number of overs after the rain has stopped or a final result if the game is abandoned. Tim Lamb, chief executive of the Test and County Cricket Board, invited Duckworth and Lewis to give a presentation at Lords on October the 12th, 1995 to a panel that included Dave Richards, chief executive of the International Cricket Council, the ICC. As the better communicator, the tall and cerebral Lewis did most of the talking. Richards, in particular, was enthusiastic. The Duckworth-Lewis formula made its debut in a one-day match between England and Zimbabwe on January the 1st, 1997. Cricket writers were already suspicious. In the Times, Simon Wilde wrote on the eve of the game, if it is interrupted by rain, a new method will be used for resetting targets. Anyone rash enough to try to understand it while nursing a New Year hangover will soon be reaching out again for the aspirin. England needed 200 to win in 50 overs, but when rain interrupted the um, the match, they were set a revised total of 182 in 42 overs. England fell seven runs short. Under the previous and much criticised system, which would have required England to simply match Zimbabwe's final run rate, the target would have been 168 and England would have won. Duckworth and Lewis were blamed for England's defeat. Pundits and broadcasters were divided. Bob Willis and Mark Nicholas got behind Duckworth Lewis and others complained that the method was unfathomable and arcane. Matthew Engel, editor of Wisdom, wrote in 1998, if the average, reasonably well-informed spectator cannot understand what is happening at an event, then it is not credible entertainment. Jonathan Agnew on Test Match Special started referring to the Vera Duckworth method. Taking the joke in good part, Lewis told Aggers that Vera stood for very equitable rain adjustments. Duckworth Lewis was universally adopted by the ICC after the Cricket World Cup in 1999. Scorers at cricket grounds began to calculate the Duckworth Lewis score any given moment on a laptop. If not fettered, the Duckworth-Lewis method at least gained acceptance. The 2003 World Cup brought fresh vitriol. South Africa, the hosts, were playing South uh, Sri Lanka and needed to win to progress to the next round. With rain about to wash the match out, Duckworth-Lewis calculations showed that South Africa needed six runs off the final two balls to be bowled before the abandonment to draw. But South Africa later claimed that they were given to understand that six runs would be... Um, required to win the match. Mark Butcher hit a six off the first ball and simply defended the next ball 
because he thought if South Africa lost another wicket, they would be behind again. Wild celebrations turned to despair, then fury. A South African newspaper cartoon depicted Duckworth and Lewis on the gallows. To the game's romantics, Duckworth Lewis could never take into account an Ian Bothan or a Ben Stokes producing the sort of heroics that can turn probability on its head. Lewis, however, reckoned the method was 99.5% Right, Anthony John Lewis was born in Bolton in 1942. He was brought up near Preston where he attended Kirkham Grammar School. Sport, and cricket in particular, was his passion. He played cricket for the school's first 11, but by his own admission, he was a door-opening batsman who could hang around a bit. There was no chance he was ever be padding up for Lancashire. Lewis studied mathematics at Sheffield University but felt lost in a, the subject's theoretical world. His enthusiasm was restored after switching to mathematics um, and statistics, which enabled him to apply theory to real-life scenarios. He took a first-class honours and stayed on to do a master's. Lewis became a lecturer at Leicester Polytechnic, which is now De Montfort, um, and began to specialise in statistics and industry. Realising that most managers had woeful quantitative skills, he established links with local industry, but every time he was on the point of making a bake- breakthrough, industrial strife would scupper his latest project. Disillusioned, he emigrated to Australia in 1972. Setting in Perth, he lectured at the Western Australian College of Advanced Education. He returned to work... Uh, in England at the UWE in 1991, his second wife, Loris, an administrator whom he married in 1985, survives him. He's also survived by his son, John, an architect, and a daughter, Sarah, a midwife from his marriage to Janet Leeson, who ended, uh, which ended in divorce. He is survived, too, by his stepchildren, Janice, Ronald, and Sharon. Lewis continued to meet his friend to discuss anomalies and modify the Duckworth-Lewis method. The arrival of more detailed statistics on websites, such as Crickinfo, enabled them to build up a database and scores after every over, rather than their original models of scores at the fall of each wicket. Stephen Stern, an American academic, helped to update the Duckworth-Lewis software in 2008. Changes in recent years have reflected higher scoring rates in modern one-day cricket and calculations for 20 oversights uh, matches known as 2020. After Duckworth and Lewis retired in 2014, Stern became the custodian of the calculation now known as the Duckworth-Lewis-Stern method. Lewis and Duckworth admitted they had bottled it when it came to negotiating a license fee for their product and made do with only modest payments. They did enjoy having a race horse named after them. Sadly, the horse proved to be less predictable than the method it was named after. Lewis attended its maiden race at Utoxter, where it was joint favourite. He was even induced to having a flutter Duckworth Lewis came in 10th. Um, so we talked about the Nash equilibrium of stockpiling um, last week. How you can't really blame anyone for doing it. They're only following game theory, optimal game theory, if they do stockpile. How good are you at the game of rock, papers, scissors? Um... They do have championships of rock, paper, scissors, and a red number of papers on it. I don't think I'm too bad, and I know one advantage play trick with it, and it's a psychological trick, so I'm going to share it with you now. 
Um, my psychological trick for rock, paper, scissors is to get in the head of the opponent. And it begins with, if the game is challenged either by them or by me, instantly you have to appear super confident, like overly confident. You have to explain that you know a good strategy and there is no way that your opponent is going to be able to beat you with this strategy that you've got. Now you are stretching the truth a little bit, but you're stretching the truth, that, that stretch of the truth is all part of the strategy, the psychological game that you're playing with your opponent. Because what you're doing is you're slightly, ever so slightly, making them question, what's going on here? What does this guy know that I don't know? And they start to judge their own game. And it introduces an element of fear. And when you go one, two, three, go, it truly is a random outcome the first time that you do it. However... One every three times, you are going to tie the game. You are going to pick the same thing that your opponent picks. And this is when the psychological advantage comes in. Because if you've already taken your opponent off the front foot, make it, made him question his own game and what you are up to, it introduces an element of fear and confusion in their own mind. And you quickly then move on to the second game, because when you tie in rock, paper, scissors in the first round, you then go to a second round to win. Now, statistically at this moment, the average person, the normal person, because they're on the back foot, will not change their initial... Um, selection if they went rock the first time they'll stay on rock and it's something to do with the fact that you're using up a little bit of critical thinking critical brain power you're already you've stolen that brain power by taking them off the front foot making them question what's going on and there's other things happening in the background and it removes their ability to think and by removing their ability to critically think um effectively um, it scares a lot of people into the physiological safety zone of just repeating the same hand action. If you've already just put your hand in a flat palm to create paper, muscle memory will make you do it again. If you've already made scissors, muscle memory wants you to make scissors again. If you've already made a rock, muscle memory will make you do a rock again. And if you're confused or a little bit on the back foot and you're not able to critically think as best as you would wish that you were, then you are more likely to repeat the same action. And that's where the edge comes in. You tell your opponent that you're an expert at scissors, paper, stone, that you are um, that you have a strategy that, that can't be beaten. If you win, bully for you, that, that was pure luck. If you lose, that will happen one every three times, and that is unlucky. And if you tie, you then have an edge... In the second round so that is my my game theory and my strategy for scissors paper stone a quebec court of appeal however has ruled that a five hundred thousand dollar debt which was incurred from three games of rock paper scissors is invalid edmund mark hooper the unfortunate loser of the classic hand game took out a mortgage on his house to pay off the debt 
a fact that was acknowledged in a notarized contract, but the Superior Court cancelled the mortgage in a 2017 decision, which was appealed by Michael Primu, who beat Hooper in the game of rock, paper, scissors, and won the $517,000 wager. Primu told the court that the best of three game took place in January 2011. Quebec law stipulates that for a wagering contract to be valid, it must be related to activities requiring only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties rather than to chance. Furthermore, the amount wagered must not be excessive. In the 2017 judgment, Superior Court Justice Shantai Chatelain found that rock, paper, scissors is not simply a game of luck. The game, Chatelain ruled, could, in certain precise circumstances, call upon the skill of the parties, particularly in the speed of execution, the sense of observation, or the putting in place of a strategic sequence. But she invalidated the contract nonetheless, judging the amount wagered to be excessive. When tasked with examining the decision, the appeals court reached a slightly different conclusion in a ruling published on April the 17th. Whilst it found that the game may call up a certain measure of skill, it seems evident that the game also involves a large part of chance, so that it does not take only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties, the court concluded. The court also upheld the lower court's conclusion that the $517,000 wager was excessive if anyone wants a game um, I'll play heads up for half a million minimum uh, in the coming up in the sport uh, I'm not gonna get into it the season is ending across the leagues they're trying to get into the fairest way of doing that um, there are a number of different mathematical ways that you can do it and not one is not gonna keep everyone happy uh, even the bookmakers, when it comes to paying out, are going to have to pay out or void bets or do justice payments or whatever happens, there's going to be people that aren't happy. There is no perfect solution to any of this. The Bundesliga is starting in the middle of the May and I think some international horse racing is starting soon. However, um, in terms of the trackers on bucky bashing, until horse racing in the UK really returns on a daily basis, and we have UK football, um, I think pretty much we're still going to remain on a temporary hiatus until sport resumes. What an odd period of time we're living in, but I hope we're all making the most of it, especially working on our scissors, paper, stone game. Um, whatever it is, that you're wagering on with your friends, please make sure that it's value. Until the next Bashcast, this is Tom signing out. Did the earth move fire? Did the earth move fire? Did the earth move fire?